Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Good morning. I am taking the mask off since I'm up here. I assume y'all are okay with that. It's easier to breathe these days without a mask on. Let me see if I can get this down here. All right. And I'm going to sit. I, again, hope that you guys are okay with that because that's what's happening this morning. Uh, my name is Daniela. I have been attending Life in Ebellum for about, well, over nine years now. And um, I'm also currently serving as a volunteer board member. Today it's just me. This, I'm Daniela today. So Daniela, the one Jesus loves, if that gives you a hint as to what we're going to be talking about. So um, fast, before I forget, we do not put scripture verses up on the screen, typically. So if you don't want to look in your phone or you don't have your own Bible here to look at, you're welcome to borrow one of ours. And our ushers or our hosts are bringing those around. So you can just raise your hand and they've got one that you're welcome to use today. Now, I don't have a funny introduction for you today. Nothing catchy, no funny story, no joke, no personal touch, because we're in the middle of a character study And it's kind of short, this one, right? Every person we've talked about has been kind of just a short little couple of weeks. And so I want to take the introduction to really talk about what Kevin talked about last week. So we're all on the same page. Um, So quick recap, we're talking about John, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple or the apostle, Saint John, however you want to label um, this guy. He was a disciple of Jesus. He had a brother named James. Dad's name was Zebedee. Uh, we, some people come to the conclusion that maybe he was a cousin of Jesus, just based on um, comparisons in the text and things like that. Um, but what we do know for certain is uh, in Mark, Mark 1, Matthew 4, Luke 5, you can see where Jesus calls James and John, Peter and Andrew. Luke's account is way more dramatic and exciting, with like sinking boats and torn nets and a crowd and Jesus and all of that. Anyway they follow. Um, From Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus referred to James and John as the sons of thunder. Now, maybe that's because they were fiery and spirited guys. Um, Maybe it's really like an Old Testament reference. Like in the Old Testament, the voice of God was often, thunder was often attributed to the voice of God. So maybe Jesus was anticipating their impact for the gospel. Who knows, right? I mean, we we can speculate on that. But we do We do know, though, that John was spirited and fiery, and we see that just from accounts in the Gospels, not necessarily just this nickname or so that they were given. So while we're talking about it, let's also get some other assumptions and traditions out of the way. Um, You're going to find opinions everywhere, right? Conclusions everywhere. So generally speaking, early church tradition holds that John, the disciple, wrote the Gospel of John, First, second, third John, and Revelation. Now, some think that he just wrote the Gospel of John and First John because there's some difference in writing styles. Um, some think that he wrote all of them. Some think that he didn't write any. So there are some differences um, there. Again, early church tradition holds that he wrote all these five books. So that's the assumption we're taking today. If you land in a different camp, that's fine, right? You might land in one of the other ones I mentioned. That's okay. But we do know that these books made it into our sacred scriptures, so we are standing with that today. So, um, 
I want to start by talking about kind of the end of John's life, or maybe kind of at the end of where Jesus kind of left earth. So last week, Kevin talked a lot about the beginning, right? What was John's life like at the beginning when he became a disciple? So I'm going to focus on the, really those later years. So the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that Jesus changed the way that John saw himself. So the way that John saw John. Jesus changed the way that John saw himself. So who was he after he'd spent time with Jesus? Who was he after the resurrection? And as I mentioned, we attribute the gospel of John and that writing to this disciple because we do in that gospel when the writer refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved, we're assuming it's John. And this happens a number of times. It happens in John 13, John 19, John 20, and twice in John 21, where this, there's this disciple whom Jesus loved. And so that's who we assume it to be, is this disciple here. And it wasn't an arrogant statement, right? It wasn't like, I'm the one that Jesus loved, not these other disciples here, right? It wasn't like that. But it's how John chose to align his history with his being, right? Who he was and what he'd done with who he really was. And so that's how he chose to align himself, his existence. Um, And he was a lot of things, right? Like I said, Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder. So why not that? I mean, imagine like the whole Bible revelation ending with like son of thunder signing off. Wouldn't that have been like a lot cooler than just like the disciple Jesus loved, right? Um, We know um, like that from the Bible that he and Two other disciples were probably in Jesus' like inner circle. They were closer to Jesus. They were like there at certain things that maybe other disciples weren't. So why not instead of the disciple Jesus' love, like Jesus' bestie? Like, right, why not something else? Why this? Seems like he could have claimed a whole lot of pretty cool things about himself. But more than anything, he was the disciple that Jesus loved. So who am I? What, is, what does this mean for me? Right, if, if Jesus changed the way John saw himself, then what does this mean for me? Now, we could go with inner critics, right? We could talk about how we all talk to ourselves maybe differently than we talk to others. But even less critical, we have labels, right, that we give ourselves. Like, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a, you know, whatever we want to say, we have these labels that we put on ourselves. Um, Many of you have lots of titles. Artist, director, activist, pastor, musician, architect, parent, ally, barista, liberal, conservative, educator, divorcee, spouse, recovering... We could just go on and on and on and on, right? We could just keep going on and on to list these titles or these labels that we give ourselves or that we give others. But what if we did this? Daniela, the one that Jesus left. Life in New Bellum. Not Life in New Bellum, the art gallery. Not Life in New Bellum, you know, with mocha, coffee, shop, and tea. Not Life in New Bellum, uh, the cultural center but life in Deep Ellum, the faith community that Jesus has loved. Or Deep Ellum, right? Throw out some things. What are some things that you think of when you hear Deep Ellum? Anybody? Yeah, music. Okay, yeah, I'm hearing some things. Y'all just don't want to talk. It's okay. You weren't prepared. It's fine. I didn't warn you. <laughs> but instead of, right, yeah, the music, art, all those things. Instead of that, Deep Ellum, the neighborhood that Jesus loves. What would change in how we view ourselves, our faith community, our neighborhood, if that was what we remembered first and foremost, that we are loved? So, instead of some other label, that's how John saw himself. 
right? He saw himself to be loved by Jesus. So Jesus changed the way that John saw himself. But it didn't end there, right? We know that Jesus also changed the way that John interacted with others. So after the Gospel of John, we do see John the disciple show up uh, a couple of times in Acts. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, so we see him show up a couple of times there. Usually he's hanging out with Peter. There was a, a layman at the temple and, that was healed. John was there with Peter. Um, there's a hearing before the council in Acts 4. John was there. Um, in Acts 8, there's some missionary work mentioned um, in Samaria. But aside from that, unless we conclude that he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John Revelation, we really wouldn't know much else because we have the Gospels and that's what we see from him in Acts. So this little series that we're doing, we're now in like the history portion, right? Um, it's, it's lending itself to like character studies, right? So we're not like digging really deep into passages or verses and things like that. Like if I were just to take the Gospel of John today and dig into that, that would be a lot, right? I can't just cover a book. Even 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, really short, but I still couldn't cover that today, really doing it justice. Um, and hello, Revelation, <laughs> anyone? Uh, we did do a series on Revelation before, so if that's what you were hoping for today, go ahead a couple years back, listen to our podcast. There you go, get, get your fill there. I'm not touching Revelation with a 10-foot pole today, so you, you have been warned there. Um, instead, what I'm going to do is focus on a couple of themes in 1 John. It's a little bit bigger than 2nd and 3rd John. Again, for the purpose of this message, we have established that we're assuming that John wrote this book, or pamphlet, as some people call it, because it's so short. So, based on what we've already said, John was a disciple that Jesus loved, and some people call him the apostle of love. So, one of the major themes is love, right, in 1 John. So, there are two major themes, God is light and God is love. We're going to briefly touch on both of those. Now, I know, I know, I know, we have all heard the sermon on love, right? Like, Okay, oh, that's not what I was really here for today. I understand, but we are talking about John, and it is a major theme in 1 John, so that is what we're going to talk about today. Um, in 1 John, he, he mentions love 38 times. All right, I told you we were going to dive into some scripture, so we're going to turn to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read from here just because it's easier for me, but if you will turn there, 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. We're going to read a number of verses. It's quite a, a couple of paragraphs here. So, 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves been, has been born of God and, God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If, everyone, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God who they've not seen. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Okay, that was a lot. I know. It was a lot, but it's really hard to like pull out of those, right? So we read it all together. We want to be in the the word. So I know there's a lot there. And again, I'm not covering even this whole passage today, right? We can't dig into each line by line. But we see this theme, right? It's kind of like a circular thing. He keeps coming back to things that he said in this passage. So um, I'm going to pull out a couple of things, like I said, from what we just read. And the first is we love because he first loved us. It's a prerequisite, right? Because he loved us, we love. And um, another way I think of this is you can't pour from an empty cup. That's kind of a hot phrase these days, right? And usually we mean it in terms of self-care, right? Can't pour from an empty cup. But I would like to propose, get your tomatoes ready, that John's deficiency in his earlier years was not due to a lack of self-care. Okay? I know. I know. Boo. Boo. What filled John's cup wasn't his righteous pursuit of what he felt was an issue of justice, right? We see that a lot in the Gospels. He was just like really passionate about these certain things that he thought was right. Um, What gave John this shifted perspective on love wasn't an arrogant realization that he was maybe closer to Jesus in some ways than other disciples were. I'd like to propose that what filled John's cup was Jesus, right? And the love that he experienced from Jesus. So um, originally I had a literal object lesson planned for you, and it twice, in two different ways, did not work. So I'm just letting you know, I'm still going to do this illustration, but y'all know I like to like, have tangible things on the stage, or maybe some of y'all know. But I'm going to illustrate this in a different way. So we say, can't pour from an empty, or you can't, yeah, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? You have to have your cup filled first. And God fills our cup, right? And so when I think about giving love to others, I have to have something to give first. And so what are some of the ways that God loves me and fills my cup? Maybe it's um, when I walk outside and the crisp morning air hits my face, right? And I'm just like, oh, God loves me. Or maybe it's when my toddler comes bounding in for a hug and gives me two kisses Italian style. My grandmother is 100% Italian, so maybe it's genetic. I don't know. Maybe it's when that piece of music moves something inside or outside of me, right? Maybe that's how God loves me. Maybe it's when I sit with scripture and engage in imaginative prayer or imagine myself in the story that that's how God loves me. Or when I go to a restaurant and the food's on point. Or when I enjoy a good sports game. When I watch the sunrise. Or when someone remembers something significant in my life or brings me meals when I'm needing it. Right? There are lots of ways, endless ways, that God could love me and show that love to me. Now, John's logic is simple. God is love, and because he is, people who know God will love others. If people don't love others, then they must not know God because God is love. How could you love God and not love others? That's the logic. That's the logic here. 
So, because God has loved us, as this passage we read said, we can love others. And I just alluded to this next point that I'm going to pull out from the passage, but it says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Okay, so if, so we're loved by God. Let's see, clockwise for y'all is this way. <laughs> we're loved by God, so we can love others, which in turn connects us back to God, right? It's like this, this cycle. God loves us, we love others, which connects us back to God. And we, lo- and we love God when we're doing that, right? That's really incredible. Now, I am going to borrow quotes from C.S. Lewis twice today, and they're fairly large quotes. I don't know why I was drawn to his writings, but Kevin even <laughs> quoted him last week too, so it's just a C.S. Lewis thing, I guess, these last couple weeks. Um, so you've got the quote up here on the screen if you want to read along with me. Um, he explains this idea of love really just beautifully. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you'll presently come to love him. There's indeed one exception. If you do him a good turn not to please God and obey the law of charity, but to show him what a fine, forgiving chap you are and put him into your debt, and then sit down to wait for his gratitude, you will probably be disappointed. But whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more, or at least to dislike it less. It is good, right? <laughs> and I may not be able to see Jesus. I may not know what he looks like. Yet maybe I do. He looks like you. I mean, sure, you're a measly representation, no offense, right? I'm a measly representation too. But through you, I get to tangibly experience God's love. Through you, our faith community gets to tangibly experience God's love. When you volunteer, when um, you help put chairs away at the end of service, when you smile as you walk by, as long as you're smiling with your eyes, right? (laughs) Through you, our neighborhood gets to tangibly experience God's love, right? When you frequent local businesses, when you invest in local organizations, when you support our artists, God is loving them too. And what a privilege that is, right? That we get to participate in that way. And all along history, God has been using people in his story. The whole time. This isn't new. It isn't a 21st century privilege. Every person has had the opportunity to participate in this way. To love and to be loved. Every person. So the last thing I want to touch on is that Jesus changed the way that John understood God. Now, when we look at, like, historical context and cultural context of the day, we know that John would have studied, right? He would have been a student, and he would have, he would have studied the word, right? He would have studied their scriptures, and he would have done that until he transitioned to, like, his father's fishing business. So he was no stranger to his religion, right? He knew the things. Of course, he wasn't the most educated. We know this from, like, his writings, from even just things that religious leaders said, Um, that are accounted for in the Gospels. We know he wasn't like the most educated person, but certainly he had an understanding of God. We we see that that has to be the case. Um, We think back, um, we see in scripture where uh, James and John offered to rain down fire from heaven on uh, some Samaritans, which there's a whole context there too, right? A group of people they just did not like. Um, We see where James and John ask if they can sit next to Jesus when he comes into his glory. Like they, they deserve these best spots. 
Um, he had an idea of God, right, some of these concepts, but did he really understand? And uh, Kevin alluded to this last week, but think about how his perspective would have changed. I mean, starting out as a younger guy, as a disciple, and then it's guessed that John could have lived till he was like 100, just based on writings and, you know, just tradition and that sort of thing. So imagine young guy to a 100-year-old man, how much of his understanding of God would have changed in his lifetime. And as with many writers of the Bible, we see him reference Old Testament concepts. So again, goes back and references things. Um, in First John, John writes a lot in dualistic terms and cause and effect. So for example, God loves us, therefore we can love others. He also constantly refers to this new commandment, which is actually an old commandment. He does that a lot. Um, Kevin talked last week about truth and how John spoke in terms of truth and love, not necessarily as separate concepts, but wants to go together. And in 1 John 1, 5, we see this dualistic terminology come out. And Kevin also alluded to this last week or talked about it. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does that mean? God is light. He's the sun. He's bright. What does it mean? And light is a topic that John has written about before. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, he wrote about this as well. It says, in him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never put it out. He also wrote in John 8, where Jesus calls himself the light of the world. So he's written about light before. But it is kind of an abstract uh, concept, right? Think about light, what we know about it. We've timed it. We've measured its speed. Um, we've figured out x-rays, laser beams, some really cool and crazy things, right? We've studied it, broken it up to a spectrum. Light's pretty untouchable. So again, this possibly reflects back on an Old Testament concept where light symbolizes like knowledge and holiness. Side note, if you're looking on a book on holiness, and that's what you were hoping I was going to talk about today, Jackie Hill Perry recently came out with one called Holier Than Thou. So there's your go run with that if you were hoping to hear about holiness today. But what we see from John is that his writing flows from this reality of God in his holiness, in his utter perfection, in his light. And again, there's no way that I can touch on holiness today. Holy cow, that would be a lot. See what I did there? Holy cow. Okay. Yeah. So again, I cannot break that down, right? That would be multiple series maybe if we ever touched on something like that. Um, but I want to point out a correlation in 1 John. 1 John 2.9, it says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So see those dualistic terms. Dark, light, hate. Love. He does that a lot in First John, whereas these dualistic terms. So God's light and love go hand in hand. And again, John's point is simple. If you don't love, you must not know God, or must not be in the light, rather. And we can't get hung up on this as an ultimatum, okay? It's not like when my kids, who are probably watching online today, it's not like my kids who say, well, fine, if you won't do this, you're not my friend anymore. Right? It's not, well, fine, if you won't love others, then you're just not in the light. Right? That's not how John is, is writing this. He's talking about a natural shift. Right? A natural shift that's going to happen when we love God. When we are in God's light and love. So basically, I love God when I love others, and I love God when I live in his light. Those are kind of some concepts that we see in First John. Frederick Buechner summed up light in this way. We can't see light itself. We can only see what light lights up, like the little circle of night where the candle flickers, a sheet of mahogany, a wine glass, a face leaning toward us out of the shadows. When Jesus says that he's the light of the world, maybe something like that is part of what he's saying. 
He himself is beyond our seeing, but in the darkness where we stand, we see. So I'm going to take a play out of John's book, quite literally in 1 John. But um, instead of presenting in like a linear way where he kind of leads all to one point, he actually does like the circular thing where he keeps coming back to the same things over and over again. So that's kind of what I'm going to do. So this guy, John, a fierce, hot-headed fisherman, gets to hang out with Jesus. And because of that, he's impacted by this exposure to being loved. It influences the way he sees himself. It influences the way he interacts with others. And it influences the way that he understands God. And as a faith community, we want to mean something to this neighborhood, right? We want our neighborhood to feel our love and support. It's been really an important part of our identity over the years. And we we want our neighborhood to miss us if we're gone. And while pressing forward is important, we know that we can't pour from an empty cup, right? We need to be filled with God's love if we're going to get anywhere with loving our neighborhood, with loving our neighbor. When is the last time that you thought about how God loves you, let alone let yourself experience it? The band's going to come. They're going to play a song um, here for us. Um, then we'll close with a benediction. But when was the last time that you thought about how God loves you? Just thought about it. Not even experience it, but when's the last time that you thought about how God loves you? Or when's the last time that we thought about how God has faithfully loved our faith community here? Uh, if I'm being honest, <laughs> the times that I feel the most like loving others aren't when I come to uh, the gathering on a Sunday morning and hear a sermon on love. Okay, right? I understand that. Thanks. No thanks. I don't need a motivational speech. I have the head knowledge on love that I need. This is not what I was looking for. I don't like Daniela's style. This isn't like the Grinch where my heart's just like growing three sizes just by sitting here. The times that I feel the most inspired to love are when I feel the most loved, right? So uh, I do want to share one rather large quote from C.S. Lewis, last one. On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Nobody can always have devout feelings, and even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. If we're trying to do his will, we are obeying the commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. He'll either give us feelings of love if he ple- He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. We cannot create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as a right. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It's not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of our sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Right? We can't have those devout feelings, but he can. And that's, that's really something. I often ask my kids, how do you know I love you? Most of y'all know I got a lot of kids. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to, trying to take it, you know, get an idea of what it is that I do or what it is that they experience that makes them really feel like they're loved. So I ask them, how do you know I love you? And sometimes they'll say, well, because you play with me or because you give me hugs and kisses or because you tell me that you do. But sometimes they just, because. Okay, and I I push them. But how do you know? How do you know I love you? So the question I would like you to sit with as the band plays uh, a final song for us is how has God loved you? Or imagine God 
asking you this question that I ask my kids. How do you know that I love you?